Well, it's really exciting to be with you this morning and to share, particularly after last week when Pastor Kelly shared a wonderful message. She shared a really exciting message. She shared a a message from Mark 11 which challenged us about having a story uh, a, a story of good enough being disruptive. A story that, well, a challenge that Jesus wants to disrupt your good enough because Jesus wants your life to produce fruit. I sat and I listened to Kelly's message last week and I thought, that is fantastic. What an amazing challenge. What a fantastic thing for us to go away and think about and try to apply to our lives. And then I realised that I'm preaching this Sunday and I've got to follow what Kelly said last Sunday. And there's a challenge in there for me. But Mark 11 finishes, and Kelly didn't touch on this last week, but Mark 11 finishes with Jesus' authority being questioned. The Pharisees hear him teach, and the Pharisees hear, uh, hear what he's saying, and they challenge what he's saying. They don't just accept it. They come to him and they say, who are you? Who are you to be teaching? Who, uh, by what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? I'm sure I'm not the only one in the room who hates having their authority questioned. When I have authority to do something, when I, have, I know that I have the authority to ask someone to do something, I hate it when the response doesn't come back, yes, when the response comes back as questioning my authority. It's happened to me a lot the last few years, my authority being questioned, because I've become a dad. And parents in the room will know that at some stage of your child's life, they learn to question authority. And they learn to question what you're doing and question what you're asking them to do. And this has happened in some wonderfully adorable and challenging ways in my life over the last few years. Challenges like Jesse, and Jesse's my three-year-old son. He's a wonderful little boy. I don't want to paint him in a bad light much. <laughs> Jesse, it's time to brush your teeth. No, I don't want to brush my teeth, Daddy. Jesse, it's time to go to school. No, I don't want to go to school. I don't like going to school. Jesse, it's eight o'clock. It's time to go to bed. <laughs> No, I'm not tired. My personal favourite, which came out for the first time a few weeks ago, was, Jesse, it is time for you to have a bath. No, I like being dirty, Daddy. <laughs> what, what, what can I do with that? What can I, t- I I laughed, he grinned, he didn't have a bath, he won. <laughs> what can you do? But it's so difficult when our authority is questioned. But as is so often the way, in the face of a challenge, we can learn so much from how Jesus responded, from how Jesus responded to his authority being questioned. Because Jesus responded not by losing his call or entering into an argument, but by telling a story, by telling a parable in Mark 12. And it's the parable that we're going to look at this morning, the parable of the tenants. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. This is going to come up on screen. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. 
dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another, another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. What would this have meant to the teachers of the law who were listening? What would they have understood as Jesus started to talk about the vineyard? These were teachers of the law who spent their lives studying scriptures, studying what, the, what we now know as the Old Testament had to say, studying the stories, uh, studying the Psalms, studying all that had to say. As soon as Jesus started talking about a vineyard, the symbolism wouldn't have been lost on them. The symbolism from Isaiah 5, which says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. But he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Let me start this morning with a challenge, which I make no apology for. Part and parcel of being part of, uh, of being a Christian, being part of the church, is that God is going to give you vineyards to care for. God is going to give you places that he will set you in responsibility over. This is an amazing privilege. It's an awesome privilege that we are invited not just to stand on the outside of what God is doing, but to get involved. God gives us responsibility uh, for, for investing in the things that he wants us to invest in. It is awesome But God expects fruit. God expects fruit from the vineyard. I would almost go as far as to say, if you don't have a vineyard, if you're sitting there saying, I don't have a vineyard, I don't have a place that I'm investing in, I would suggest you go away and think about it. Go away and think about it. Go away and think and pray and ask God to show you what are the places that he has for you to invest in? What are the vineyards that he has ready for you to work on? And the landlord of the vineyard asks for some fruit. He doesn't just ask us to go and enjoy the vineyard, to go and enjoy working in the sun, but he asks for fruit. He asks for something to be produced from the work that we're doing. What are our vineyards? We have many vineyards in our lives. Let me suggest just a few. The first vineyard, one that we all have in common here, is church. Is church your vineyard? Is church somewhere that you are investing in? Somewhere that you are are putting things into, using your gifts to play a part in, instead of just standing on the outside watching the vineyard? If you come to church every Sunday... And you look and you think, do you know what, this is a vineyard only for the gifted, only for people who are on church staff. 
This is a vineyard for people who have the ability to play a musical instrument or to sing. Then actually you're missing the point because we all have a part to play in the vineyard that is the body of Christ. We all have a part to play in the vineyard that is the Bridge International Church. We can all invest. I remember one of the first Sundays I came, I came to this church. It was one of the things that struck me was the vineyard going on downstairs every Sunday. And there's a vineyard going on downstairs in our children's work every Sunday. I have a three-year-old son who I've already mentioned. And our first Sunday here, he went down to, to children's church and he came up afterwards and on the train on the way home, I said to him, Jesse, what, what, are you, what did you learn at Sunday school? And I'll be honest, I was expecting I drew a picture, Daddy, or I sang a song, Daddy, or I had a biscuit, Daddy. He did say he had a biscuit, just to be honest. His, the first thing he said was, I had a biscuit, Daddy. It was delicious. It had chocolate in it. Great, fantastic, Jesse. The second thing he said was, I learned about Daniel. And I said, wonderful, Jesse, what did you learn about Daniel? And he turned to me, and I'll never forget, Jesse said, I learned about Daniel, Daddy, because God shut the lion's mouths. I learned about Daniel because God shut the lion's mouths. I was so blown away that Jesse, at three years old, was going down to Sunday school, and he was having scripture invested in him. The fruit of that was that on the way home, he wasn't telling me about the pictures that he'd drawn or the games that he'd played. He was telling me the truth of what he'd learned from Scripture that Sunday morning. The fruit of what is going on in the vineyard downstairs is that our children and young people are going to grow up with Scripture embedded in their hearts. What a wonderful, wonderful thing is going on downstairs. If you are coming to church and you're not sure where you can invest, you're not sure what your vineyard is, have a look downstairs. Have a look at how you can invest in the children and young people that we've got in this church. For other people, work can be another vineyard, another place where you invest your time and your energy, whatever work might look like. Work could be going to an office, it could be working from home, it could be being a stay-at-home parent, Trust me, I spend a couple of days a week looking after my children and then I go to work for a break. <laughs> because it's exhausting looking after kids. Yeah, oh, have, we got, have we got some au pairs here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, 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 you deserve medals. It's amazing. At least, yeah, anyway, 18 years to go. Um, <laughs> my wife's not here, it's okay. But what, what are we investing in at work? How, how do we consider the places that we go to work as our vineyards, as places where God has called us to use the gifts that he's given us to produce fruit, to produce things which are going to last forever? Amen. Are there other places in your life that you consider as vineyards, that you consider as places you go where you can invest in other people and be a witness for the gospel? It may be that you're a part of a club, in part, part of a sports club, maybe an arts club. We have some people who are part of reading and writing clubs. I recently joined, uh, I was a founding member actually, of a very prestigious club in, in Paris. 
It's appeared on the screen behind me. For those of you, I'm sure many of you have heard of it already. It's the Queen's Park Rangers Supporters Club in Paris. Queen's Park Rangers, for those who don't know, who I, which I suspect is no one, but Queen's Park Rangers is a football team in England. It's my football team, and we're not very good, if I'm honest. <laughs> but it's an amazing opportunity for me to go and meet people and have discussions. It's a vineyard where I can begin to share something of the truth of the gospel with the people that I meet. It's, it's a space where, as Queen's Park Rangers begin to lose, one, two, three, four nil which happens on a regular basis. People are asking questions about what, why, about hope, about hopelessness. We know a lot about hopelessness at Queen's Park Rangers. But actually, what, where are the places in your life that you regard as vineyards, places where you can go and God has called you to, to go and speak truth, go and be witnesses for the gospel, witnesses for who Jesus is in your life to the people that you meet and the people that are around you? These are our vineyards, but so often the world around us is not open to the message that we take. Going back to the passage, the solution for for the landowner is that he had one left to send after they neglected the servants and kicked the servants out and got rid of them. The landowner had uh, had one left to send, a son whom he loved. If we can continue with the passage. A son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. God's solution to his vineyard being rejected, to his world being rejected, was to send his son. It was to send Jesus. This parable is not just a nice story. This parable is is a story of, of God's relationship with us, with the world, and what God has done for us. He sent his son. And the the people listening to the story, they wouldn't have understood what was going on. They would have been sitting there saying, this landlord is crazy. This landlord is mad. Can't the landlord see what's happened to the servants that have gone uh, already? Why on earth would he send his one and only son? Why on earth would he send his son who he loves? It was a shocking message for those listening and a particularly shocking message for the teachers of the law because it's not what they had been expecting at all. They were expecting the Messiah to come and exalt them as law keepers. They were expecting the Messiah to come and raise them up because they were enforcing the law. But in reality, what were they doing with the vineyard that God had given them? What were they doing with the vineyard that God had given them? What fruit were they producing with the vineyard that God had given them? And we do have to be careful not not to allow the world around us to define what what we mean by fruit. Mm -hmm. It would be so easy for us to sit and and talk about fruit and and our minds immediately go to, to what the world expects of us. And I'll be honest, this is something I've struggled with over the last number of years since moving to Paris. I moved to Paris in 2010 for 18 months. 
which didn't really work out that well because I'm still here. Uh, and I moved here for my wife's work. And for a number of years, I, I did fairly casual work. I worked in tourism and, and I taught English. I often had people while I was at work say to me, this is wonderful what you do. It's really good fun. What do you do for a job? And I would be standing in the pouring rain, taking people around Paris on a bike, saying, well, as much as you're enjoying this, it's exhausting for me. Like, I, I'm, I'm actually at work at the moment. And they would say, yeah, no, no, I, I, I get it, I get it. But what do you do for a job? <laughs> it's, just, it's just not worth doing. And, and I, I often allowed myself to get frustrated by this and ask questions and actually get, get quite down. And I would say, you know, what am I doing? I don't have a high salary. I don't have career prospects. Uh, I don't have a nice big apartment. Now, looking back on it, looking back on my first few years in, in Paris, I can see the fruit of those years. And the fruit of those years may not have been a high salary, but the fruit of those years were that I had time to invest in friendships. I had time to maybe do a bike tour in the morning, go home and study my Bible in the afternoon. I had time to, to sit and listen to, listen to sermons. I had time to allow God to produce fruit in my life that maybe wasn't worth much according to the world. But actually, looking back on it now, it's fruit that's so valuable. So can I encourage you, if as you're listening to this message, you find yourself thinking, what fruit am I producing in, your, in, in my life? Don't let those doubts get a hold in your mind because actually so often God is doing things in the background which we don't recognise until years, month, well, months, years or decades afterwards but God is doing stuff and he is producing fruit in your life that he will use for his glory. The fruit is not just bringing people to church. Of course it's an overflow of the fruit of the spirit that we read in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. So going back to the passage, let's have a recap. Where are we at? The tenants have a good vineyard where they can produce fruit, but they refuse to pay the owner of the vineyard a cut of the profit. Eventually, the owner sends servants, and they're beaten. He sends his own son. And his son is killed by the tenants. And having reached this awful, terrible, heartbreaking point in the passage, Jesus turns to the teachers of the law and he says, haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. The chief priests and elders of the law reacted to that by looking for a way to persecute Jesus. They wanted to look for a way to arrest him because of the parable that he had spoken against them. Why? Why were the teachers of the law so infuriated by what Jesus had said? Because they were expecting to be raised up as law keepers, but instead Jesus came and indicated that he was and is the cornerstone. And as I've researched for this sermon, I've realised that I was wrong in what I thought a cornerstone was. Because I always assumed that the cornerstone was the stone in a building which held everything together. 
I always assumed that if you took the cornerstone away, everything would fall apart and everything would collapse. But I was wrong. Because actually, as I've been forced to do research, when I say I've been forced to do research, it's a big craze in my household at the moment. And when I say my household, I mean my wife loves watching a TV program called Grand Designs. Has anyone seen Grand Designs? Okay, here's the story of Grand Designs. We want to build our own house. We have a budget of 300,000, and it's going to take us six months. They start the program, they discuss the plans. The program ends with that same family three years later. We still live in a caravan. The building hasn't been finished, and we've run out of money. Almost all of them end, end like this. And then they go back six years later, and they have a wonderful house. But in the course of being forced to watch Grand Designs, I've realized that the cornerstone isn't the, isn't the stone that holds the whole thing together. The cornerstone is the first stone that is laid. In the time of Jesus, builders would have gone to the quarry and they'd have spent days or weeks looking at stone after stone after stone after stone until they found the stone with the exact right dimensions. And from that stone, they would build the whole of the rest of the building. They would build everything that went around it. Because if they got the cornerstone wrong, they'd come to the end of the building and there might be a gap in the wall or a bit of the roof might fall in. But if they got the cornerstone right, everything else would fall into place around that cornerstone. What Jesus is saying here is that he was the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone of creation. And the teachers of the law uh, would have been stunned by this because, they, again, they knew their scriptures. They would have known that in Psalm 118, it says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. They would have known that in Zechariah 10.4, it says, From Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. The Pharisees were furious. They were so angry at what Jesus was saying because Jesus was placing himself as the cornerstone of creation. Jesus was placing himself as the cornerstone in the beginning, the cornerstone that sustains creation today, and the cornerstone of our salvation, the cornerstone of where we're going. And it's so easy, thinking about how this practically applies to our lives, it's so easy to talk about cornerstone and for me to go and tell you stories of great men and women who have gone to far-flung lands with Jesus as their cornerstone and they have declared the gospel. And that's great. And those are fantastic stories that can be so encouraging. But for us in our everyday lives, what does it mean when we say Jesus is our cornerstone? What does it mean for your career? What does it mean for your family? What does it mean in your friendship groups? What does it mean to have Jesus as the cornerstone? I was having a, a very interesting conversation with a couple who visited us from England a few weeks ago. And they really challenged me as, as we were discussing this morning and what I was speaking about. Because they said there was a time in their lives when they were both young professionals and it was spoken about in church that Christ needed to be your cornerstone. And people interpreted that 
And so they neglected their careers, they neglected work, because they focused on Christ as their cornerstone. And actually, I think that's missed something. Because in the same way that Christ has called us to have him as his cornerstone, he's also called us to our professions. He's called us to be lawyers, to be teachers, to be au pairs, to be stay-at-home parents. He's called us to what uh, he, he wants us to do. But the starting point of where he's called us is Christ. Is Christ as the cornerstone. And from that starting point, everything else is built up. And if we start with Christ as our cornerstone, we're heading in the right direction. We're already heading in the right direction. So this morning, I want to leave you with with a challenge. To what degree is Jesus the cornerstone of your life? To what degree is Jesus the cornerstone of your marriage? To what degree is Jesus the cornerstone of your relationships? To what degree is Jesus the cornerstone of the decisions that you make on a daily basis? What part does Jesus bring uh, play in your life? Is he brought in on a Sunday morning as a small brick that features in your week for two hours or for an hour on a Sunday morning? Or is he the cornerstone? Is he the first stone laid that sets the direction for where you're going, sets the direction for how you treat other people, sets the direction for how you respect your bosses, sets the direction for how you are loving and compassionate to your colleagues, sets the direction for how you treat your spouses, how you treat your children, how you treat your superiors and those that are the very least in society. Because if we start with Christ as our cornerstone, it sets us on off in such an exciting direction. It sets us off in a direction which we don't know where we're going to go, but the starting place is so secure and so solid that we know we're heading in the right direction. Can I challenge you this morning? To what degree is Christ the cornerstone of your life?